0: No, on top of being stressed and on top of being worried about all these what ifs, I started picking fights with those that were closest to me. And I started uh, losing trust extremely easily. And I started getting very paranoid. I started getting like like all these mood changes and started getting like happy when things were good, but then extremely, extremely sad and fatigued when things weren't, weren't, weren't even bad. They were just less than good. <laughs>
1: Hey guys, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today I'm here with Kayla who has an incredible story to share. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. (laughs) So do you want to share your story with us? Yeah, Um, I'm Kayla. I
0: am 24 years old and I wasn't really introduced to the world of mental health until I I was forced into it pretty much. Um, I No one ever talked about it. Um, as a lot of people know, growing up, you don't really hear anything about it. You don't hear about depression. You don't hear about anxiety. Um, you kind of only hear about like the extreme cases, really. And so it was pretty rare. And so when it happened to me, I was completely confused. Um it started when I was a freshman in college. Um, at the time, I was away from home. I, had, I was in a very toxic relationship. It was my first relationship. Um, and the relations between me and my mom weren't the greatest. And so you add that on top of the freshman stress of, you know, being in college, like being on your own for the first time and everything else, it was not a good mix. And on top of that, I had just started uh, birth control and it was the, the depo shot. And for those of you that don't know, it's a shot that gives you like injects you with tons of hormones all at once. Um, that's supposed to last you three months and then you get another one every three months. So just keep all that in mind. So things started getting really, really bad. I started getting um, Like a lot of arguments with my boyfriend, a lot of arguments with my mom. I was super stressed from school and getting those good grades. Um, I was also like pretty lonely and I had all these hormones in me. And turns out that the doctors who gave me the shot uh, double dosed me and gave me another shot too early. And so I was just like a wreck and I didn't even realize it. And so I started getting more and more stressed and I started realizing, like, hey, this isn't normal. Like I'm on top of being stressed and on top of being worried about all these what ifs, I started picking fights with those that were closest to me. And I started uh, losing trust extremely easily. And I started getting very paranoid. I started getting like, like all these mood changes and started getting like happy when things were good, but then extremely, extremely sad and fatigued when things weren't, weren't, weren't even bad. They were just, less than good (laughs) and so I eventually um, went to a doctor as a follow-up for the birth control and I started talking about my symptoms emotionally and they were like it sounds like you have depression and you have anxiety and I was just quiet and I was like what does that mean what like that I mean does is that not normal is that not what like everyone else kind of like goes through, it just seems like I'm stressed. And then they're like, no, like it's, it's excessive here, talk to a psychologist and blah, blah, blah. So fast track, I got diagnosed at the time with moderate to severe um, depressive disorder and with general anxiety disorder. And once I got that, immediately they put me on Xanax and they put me on, I wanna say Prozac or some antidepressant. And they just told me here, some pills, it'll make you all better get like here's some pills you take every day xanax take whenever you're having a panic attack and everything's going to be fine so me not knowing anything and them being doctors i said okay let's do it um didn't didn't work out (laughs) very well actually because i'd never talked to anyone about this i wasn't going to a therapist i was just depending solely on these pills expecting myself to just be back to normal um and then fast track to the end of my freshman year um Uh, it was the night before my finals, before like my final finals. And um, I was on on the phone with my mom and my boyfriend and things just got extremely heated. I don't even remember what it was about, but long story short, it was very heated argument. And I started having a panic attack and this was the worst one I had ever had before this. I only had like one or two. And so you know, in, in my heightened state, I took uh, antidepressants and then I took a Xanax. Nothing was happening. I waited 15 minutes, 20 minutes, nothing was happening. I still felt like I was going to die. My heart was beating out of my chest. I thought like the world was just going to like collapse on top of me. And so in that state, I took another pill and then I took another pill and I do not remember really anything after that other than waking up in handcuffs, passing out again, and then waking up in an ambulance, passing out again, and then waking up in a psych ward. And so I stayed there for a week and I realized that I didn't remember a lot of it, but never once did I, you know, try to commit suicide. Never once did I want to die. I was just in that state. I thought these pills were the only things that were going to take me out of this feeling and since it's not working i'm just going to take some more like that's that's how i actually thought they worked and when i was in the hold i realized that the doctor who gave them to me completely skips everything over what you're supposed to tell a patient like with Xanax, you're not supposed to take it when you are having a panic attack, you're supposed to take it beforehand, or else it's not going to work. It's actually just going to sedate you, but it's not going to help with the panic attack itself. And the antidepressants have no immediate effect on your mood at that moment. It's more of just like a regulatory basis kind of thing. And that was the first time someone was like, hey, you should talk to someone (laughs) And, and like, hey, you should identify what caused this. And from that moment on um, i had my eyes open to you know the bad parts in a sense that i wasn't taking care of and the people that i trusted to help me through this didn't tell me anything that i needed and since no one else talked about it before I got diagnosed, I didn't have anyone to talk about it because they didn't know anything. So I was just completely lost. And I was just, like I said, I was kind of forced into this world in a sense that I had to search for answers and I had to do you know, this work. I had to look for help. I had to ask those questions. I had to have those conversations. And eventually it led to a passion for it um, because I realized through all of that, that everyone goes through something at some point everyone either can say for themselves yes i have mental health issues or i know someone who does i mean one in 5 people like in the world like ha- like have it like it's 20% that's millions and millions of people and yet it's still a topic that no one talks about someone who has depression can interact with 20 other people in one day that also have it but then they don't have that support. They don't have that information. They don't have that help. And I, me having gone through that, that is what motivated me to have those conversations so I can help at least one person not go through the same thing. And so that's where we are today. I studied psychology. I got my uh, bachelor's in it. I'm not a psychologist, but I do care about the topic a lot to the point where i want to spread as much information that i can and have as many of those conversations that i can so
1: i (laughs) love your strength and your passion to help create these conversations in a way that no one else is like you said you grow up and no one talks about mental health no one introduces you to depression or anxiety or adhd or OCD, or autism, or anything, and then all of a sudden, a doctor might tell you you're living with something, but you don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. How do you advocate for yourself at a doctor, at a psychiatrist, at a therapist's office, if you don't understand what it means, if you have no backstory to it, no understanding, no way to know what it is, or what causes it, or what treatment options are, and then you have to research it on your own, And there's such a stigma on it that a lot of information out there is false or given in a way that makes you feel worse about yourself so that you don't want to continue the conversation or reach out for help and support. And it's so frustrating. And that's why people like you who are so willing to have these conversations and to take your pain and turn it into purpose is so, so important. So thank you for what you're doing.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. And one thing I do want to tie on to that is, Um, I do want to preface all of this with the fact that even though me or Francesca or any other person you see talking about it and being completely open, that doesn't speak for every single person who goes through it. Just because we're talking about it and we are trying to put that out doesn't mean that everyone who has a mental illness will be willing to talk about it or will be equally as open because maybe, you know, they have, everyone goes through something different. And so maybe don't assume that someone just going to be like, okay, here's all my secrets. Here's what I'm going through. And here, like, I want you to understand, like, you have to understand that everyone is an individual. And what uh, I'm doing, what Francesca is doing is just trying to shine light on the general population, but we can't speak for any one person, any one illness, any one disorder. Um, so we're just trying to make it more normal. So in the future, people who are dealing with the same thing will hopefully add their voice to this movement.
1: Exactly. And when it comes to mental health disorders, there is no standard symptom list. There is no standard one treatment fits all. Everyone's different. So just because you don't relate to one of our treatment plans or our symptoms doesn't mean that what you're going through is not valid or not real. And I think that's something that a lot of people feel is that because someone lives with anxiety and they have panic attacks that are debilitating, and if I don't, well then maybe my anxiety is not that bad and I don't deserve Mm. to go and get it checked out and see if there's something that could help me, whether it's medication or coping mechanisms or therapy. I think a lot of people are afraid because they don't fit that stereotype that society has created.
0: Yep. And that's definitely like a point that I wanted to go over is um, like the misdiagnoses and, um, or just categorizing or putting people into a box. Now, you know, we don't understand everything about the brain, we don't understand everything about anything, really. And so what the best that we have is what we have now, which is the DSM-5, which is people who have been studying the history of this, like, you know, what works, what doesn't. And then there are people now that are being more innovative, like Dr. Amen, that we'll talk about. Um, So when you're talking about how there are people that may have the same diagnosis, but they don't share the same symptoms at all. They can have completely different symptoms, but still have the same thing. So like depressive disorder, my depression looks completely different from like my friend's depression. And it's the only way for you to understand is to be open and say, okay, this is what mine looks like. And then at least that'll give that person idea. Like, okay, so mine's different. There's different, but we still are kind of in the same boat. We're still going through something. And so like with the DSM-5, it leads to a lot of misdiagnoses too, because there are like trillions and billions and, you know, Words that I don't even know, the amount of combinations that the symptoms can have from the DSM 5 can, like, someone could have the same exact symptoms as you, but have a completely different diagnosis. And it's so hard. I think we need to give props to the people that are working in this field because they have to try to maneuver that and they have to try to figure out, okay, well, this person's doing this, this person's doing that, but then. This person also doing this and it's so many different things. And so the plus side is that we do have a map. We do have the DSM-5 to be able to guide us in a, in a, in a direction that we're supposed to go when it comes to treatments. But the downside is that it's so easy to get it wrong. And it's so easy to put someone into a box on this side when they're supposed to be all the way over here. So what does that mean? If they get a treatment for this box, then that could totally make their symptoms worse. When they actually need a treatment that's completely different. And that just is a snowball effect to a whole bunch of other things. They can be misinformed. They can have all these misconceptions. They can, you know, if they get worse symptoms from their medication, it leads to a whole emotional and like emotional effect on their self-identity. Like this treatment's not working. Does that mean I'm not fixable? this treatment, you know, is not helping me. Does that mean that I'm screwed and I have to live with this for the rest of my life? And eventually, like, they'll get discouraged. They'll be like, okay, well, nothing's going to work. So I just, like, it's sad. It's it's sad that a system that's supposed to help us has the the same power to prevent us from actually getting help.
1: Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. And they do, they put you in a box based off of your symptoms. And it's not any psychologist or therapist or social worker's fault it's what you're mm-hmm. taught it's what you're trained and like i was what they considered a textbook case for depression mm-hmm. i had suicide attempts i felt hopeless i was down i spent a lot of time crying wanted to give up and i was feeling lonely sad depressed the whole textbook case but no one looked at how happy i could go i could be super mm-hmm. up I was on top of the world, loved life, talking a thousand miles a minute, changing topics so fast. No one saw the mania because they were so focused on the depression. I was misdiagnosed for two years with depression, anxiety, when I actually had bipolar disorder as well as anxiety. I got put on the wrong medication, put me into a manic manic episode. I was like, I'm done with medication, never doing medication again. It's not the right thing for me. doesn't work. I was totally one of those people for two years until I finally got the right diagnosis and the right medication. And I think a lot of people go through that where we're misdiagnosed because they put you in a box as soon as they hear a certain set of symptoms and they don't look Mm -hmm. at it from a whole.
0: It's like that confirmation bias, where they already see you as something, they already have an image in their mind. And then naturally, they just pick the things that support that. But you can be completely ignoring the one thing that'll completely change it. And again, like you said, it's not any one um, uh, psychologist or psychiatrist's fault. It's It's the paradigm. It's the foundation that we've been given to build off of. And that's kind of goes into why we're having this conversation and why you have this nonprofit. It's because everyone knows now that there's something wrong. There's multiple things wrong. Um, But that's the only way to change it is to address it and to talk about okay, what is your experience and how how do you feel like you've been failed by the system, let's call it, um, or society, and you know then we go from there.
1: Exactly. And last time we spoke, you recommended me to read The End of Mental Illness, mm-hmm. and that was so eye opening. Yes, it was, <laughs> I, I can't even put it into words because in the book, Dr. Amen says, no one looks at the brain. When you have something wrong with your heart, the cardiologist checks your heart. When you have something wrong with your foot, the podiatrist will look at your foot. No one looks at the brain.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because like it you is. said, it's like common sense but we can't blame anyone for you know not you know not really like looking at it because you and I we studied it we we studied psychology but never once I don't know about you but never once in my four years of of studying it was I ever told hey since you know mental illness makes sense to look at the brain because your mind is inside your brain so why not look at it and a lot of the times when I saw doctors actually looking at the brain, it wasn't until after they got an unrelated head injury. And then, you know, they have all these other symptoms and all, the other, all these other problems. Um, but just like for context, I guess, for the people listening, um, Dr. Amon is a psychiatrist, but he actually prefers the term uh, uh, clinical neuroscientist. And I think that's a perfect description because what he does is instead of relying on the DSM-5, he still uses it of course, but instead of relying solely on those categories um, and on those boxes that we were talking about, he actually looks into the brain just like you were talking about how, okay, something's going on, the perception is wrong or you know, their, um, their navigation of the world or their conversations or their language, something is wrong. And we need to look at the source of that, which is the brain. So he does things called spec scans, and it's like an MRI, um, but instead of looking at the anatomical structure of the brain, it maps out the activity um, and the function of the brain. So it gives you an image, and a healthy brain is a smooth brain and shows everything is functioning at 100%, and everything's great. But if someone goes in, say, with um, an alcoholic, or a drug abuser or someone who had a a traumatic brain injury and some part of their brain isn't working as well as the rest of them, you will see that there is a deficit inside that image, not because their brain is literally carved out, but because that brain, it's as if it didn't exist because it wasn't working properly. And so going into the book, it's all about him changing that old paradigm that we were talking about and him saying, something needs to change and we need to do our parts by getting as much information as possible to help people the way they are supposed to be helped and help them to the point where they won't have to keep coming back for treatments so and they won't have to keep taking medications um, instead of shooting in the dark and saying, oh this does this medication doesn't work all right we're gonna go with this one But instead being able to pinpoint this is what's causing it you know this is the treatment and this is specific for you, not for the category that you fall under. Um, So yeah, I'd like to talk about that story that's inside. Yes, yes, I was going
1: to ask you to share that story (laughs) because it is so intriguing, and it makes you look at mental health disorders in a completely different way, so please, please share that story.
0: Yes, so prefacing this, uh, the point that we're this book is trying to make and we are trying to emphasize is that mental illness should be seen exactly the same as physical illness and before I get into the story to kind of paint the picture I guess if someone for example someone has depression right and they are in their bed and they have you know no motivation to get up someone could possibly say like hey just think happy thoughts and get up you know like it's not hard but say someone is in bed they don't want to get up because they have a broken leg you're not going to be like hey just think happy thoughts just get up like that's ridiculous or someone who has social anxiety and they are so fear-stricken and they are practically paralyzed because they they can't they can't move you're not just going to be like hey get over it and like you know some people can say that hey get over it like it's just people just talk but then say someone is actually in a wheelchair and they're actually paralyzed or they actually can't move. You're not just going to be like, hey, get over it, get up and go. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's met- What happens in your brain and what Dr. Eamon goes over is that if something is happening in your brain, it's not your choice. It's not your mind like, you know, telling you, like, hey, choose to act this way. Something is physiologically changing your perception. It's changing your will. It's changing you know, how you see things. It's changing how you want to do things. It's changing your actions. It changes your abilities to navigate life. And so going into the story, we're gonna talk about Dave and Bonnie. So Dave and Bonnie were married for 15 years. Everything was perfect. Everything was great. They were a perfect match, super happy. Textbook marriage, right? But then after a few years, So like the last eight years, they've been having a lot of problems. And so nothing really changed with Bonnie, but Dave completely changed into a different person. He was mean. He was angry. He had rage fits. He was aggressive. He was upset. And so a lot of it turned into Bonnie resenting Dave. And there was so much strain on their marriage because it didn't seem like Dave even wanted to be in the marriage anyway. So instead of giving up, they were like, hey, let's go to a marriage counselor. So they went to uh, to certified ther- therapy for three full years and $25,000 later of treatment, the counselor was like, you know what? In my professional opinion, your marriage is screwed and you guys should get a divorce. And they also diagnosed Dave with, what did he get? I wrote it down here. Um, mixed personality disorder with narcissistic and antisocial antisocial features, and intermittent explosive disorder. So not necessarily ideal personality of someone to be in a marriage. And so because he was diagnosed with that and because of this person's knowledge that they were given from the DSM-5 and their psychological background, their opinion was, this can't be fixed. He has to work on it himself, but this marriage is not gonna work out. Luckily for Dave and Bonnie, they were stubborn. They, they didn't want a divorce. So they were directed to Dr. Amon, the person who does the spec scans. And right off the bat, they had both of their brain scans, body came out normal, it came out healthy, mentally healthy, physiologically healthy. Dave, on the other hand, his brain looked exactly like someone who was an alcoholic or was a drug abuser, like to the T textbook. And so they were like, hey, do you drink alcohol do you use drugs and after verification with their lifestyle and through bonnie they uh came to the realization that he doesn't drink he doesn't use drugs he doesn't do any of that stuff and so they're wondering okay but if he doesn't do that how come his brain looks like this so and for background Uh, People who have this brain type and this lack of activity in those certain parts of their brain, people who abuse drugs and alcoholics and stuff, they have symptoms that are exactly like the ones that Dave has. And so when we think it's not because of any, you know, mental issue, it's because they're abusing drugs, because that's messing with the way that their brain is wired. So after realizing this, they analyzed his life for the past eight years, and they said, what happened, like, do you work around any fumes or toxic, you know, air? And he said, well, I work at a, fa- uh, at a furniture manufacturing plant and I work near fumes, but I don't wear a mask, even though I should. And then they were crying. They were like, when did you start working at this factory? Eight years ago. So from that, immediately they were able to say, you, your brain is being affected by the secondhand inhalation of these toxic fumes. As if you were straight up doing drugs by yourself for the past eight years, so you have brain damage from these fumes, and so it's not from you know this uh, personality disorder or uh, this explosive disorder. It's because your brain has been suffering from your environment for eight years, and you didn't even realize it. So their course of treatment was okay, we're going to get you off of your medication that's treating you for those specific disorders. We're going to give you brain nutrient supplements. So things that help your brain um, process, you know, cognitively like well and at 100% and all that. And he was pretty much commanded to change his job, which I think is very justifiable. (laughs) And so he went back to that job plan, but away from the fumes. Now everything's fine. You know, he is, you know, pretty much back to normal. I followed up and like their marriage is great. They're still married. Like he, she says that she feels like she has her husband back for the past eight years. It was like to a stranger, but then now they're happily married. And just to think about it, going back to that marriage therapist, she didn't do anything wrong really. And it sense that like, she did her job. She listened and she tried to figure out the best outcome. And under her professional opinion with her limited resources, they would have been divorced by now. But because thanks to people who said, no, there has to be more. And we have to look into the the organ that is causing these problems. Because of that, he was able to turn his life around and make up for all those years that he lost. So
1: I love that story so much. And it's such a perfect Mm -hmm. example of how the DSM-5 is very limited. And that is the Bible of mental health. Mm -hmm. And when we don't look at the brain, we miss so much. There are so many other factors that can contribute to different symptoms of mental health disorders. One common thing is hormones. People don't realize that. (laughs) And it's so, so important that we don't go straight to kind of giving up on finding answers. A lot of times we go to psychiatrists, we get medication, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We give up. We don't have to give up. You can get blood tests, run and check your hormone levels, check your vitamin levels. Low vitamin D can cause mood instability. Go and get a brain scan if you can, if it's financially affordable. There are so many things that you can do, but no one talks about it. So people don't realize it. we go straight to medication or therapy. And although those can both be great, if it's not working for you, that doesn't mean you have to give up.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember when I, it was after I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And to me, it was completely out of the blue. Like it, you know, I wasn't expecting it at all. And so when I went to the doctors and I found out that I was, you know, doubly dosed with all those hormones and stuff, it did feel extremely like vindicating and like a relief. Like, okay you know, from the, the very small amount of knowledge that I had about mental health at the time, I was like, okay, like, I'm not crazy. And like, this wasn't just all made up in my head. And this was real because something happened in my body. And that changed the way I thought that changed the way that I interact with people. And it's because of these hormones, not because, you know, I'm some lost cause, hopeless, crazy person and that's the stigma talking and that stigma is written by the world that we live in right now and um as i was saying like earlier before we started recording like i do firmly believe that the way the world is right now and the society that we live in people who have to deal with their mental health um and deal with the obstacles that come with it we're kind of set up for failure And so that's why I'm so grateful for you and for everyone else who is deciding to make a change and actually do something to change the fact that we, you know, we're we're struggling here. It's hard, (laughs) and it shouldn't be like that. There's absolutely no reason. And so the stigma is what debilitates so many people from actually getting a treatment, from talking about it, from being educated, from feeling hopeless. And like you were talking about. And how like Dr. Ingram was talking about is there's so many different factors and the idea of you know us getting screwed over by society is evident in almost everything so for example biology um, low blood pressure um, stress at work uh, you know hormones you know obesity like all of these things make you so much more predisposed to having to deal with some sort of mental health issue. And where do we live? We live in a country that pushes soup, like fast food, very unhealthy lifestyle. Um, And like, they encourage, oh, and like healthcare and like the, the amount it costs to even talk to a therapist, to even, even ask someone a simple, like one question, you pay like $150 just to ask. Oh, what does this mean? (laughs) Like it's ridiculous. And then so we are we are living in such a profit-driven society that profits take precedent over the actual well-being. So the profits of food take over the precedent of people's well-being physically and you know, their their hearts, like cardiologists, they like, hey, stop eating fast food. But because we live in a world that makes it so accessible and so easy and so desirable it's hard. And that already in itself creates an obstacle for that person that's actually trying to turn their life around, actually trying to get better. And then going into the social aspect, social media, it's great. It's amazing. It connects everyone. But in the desire to connect people with people all around the world, it also creates a huge gap. And it creates um, a lack of connection, really, because One, it creates a barrier between people who have something and people who don't. And so I know that I struggle with this with social media is like, I feel like I need to be on social media because I need to be in the know. I need to have this connection with my friends. I need to show this so people know who I am kind of thing. But with that, with being on social media, I'm always on it. And I am always looking at these people and I do everything in my power not to compare myself to them, but because of advertisements, because of, you know, America's, let's just talk about America, America's idea of beauty. Do I fit that? What do they have? And I don't, you know, why do they seem so happy? And I'm over here, like, you know, sad all the time or like, how come they get to do this? And I don't that creates so much animosity so much rage so much sadness and it it hurts us and the, the scariest part is that we don't even realize it it's called automatic negative thoughts i think from breeding and those are things that you have no control over but they directly stem from what you surround yourself with so if you are surrounded with social media if you're surrounded with you know the negative news that they choose to show on you know tv all the time. If you're around people who don't care about their health, if you are in a city where all people do is not care about the environment, not care about, you know, what they put in their bodies and things like that, without you even trying, your go- your body is going to respond to it and it's going to be in that fight or flight mode. It's going to try to protect you, but if you're constantly surrounded by that, if that's constantly being reinforced into your life, then it gets harder and harder and harder to Dig yourself out of a hole that maybe
1: you didn't even put yourself in. Exactly. There are so many things I want to touch on. First, let's go back to fast food and processed food and all the chemicals that are being put into our foods that we don't realize. And it is so accessible, and it's so much cheaper, and it just—it's so convenient. I just tastes good. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. (laughs) <laughs> Today, I actually just got a blood test run called the MRT panel that I should get results in a week. And that tells me what kind of chemicals, medication, food that I'm allergic to, that my body may react oh. by giving me headaches, by giving me cramps, by making me feel bloated, by making me feel depressed and down. And I think a lot of people don't realize that there's so much in our food that can be hurting us that can mess with our heads and our moods. And that's just not something that's talked about. If a doctor didn't recommend I get this test then I wouldn't have even knew it was an option. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that is so infrequently done that insurance doesn't cover it. So it's mm-hmm. an expensive blood test, but it can make all the difference in so many different ways. And that's just another disconnect of information that we don't have. And then building onto social media, all the advertisements we see. What is the most common advertisement you get? For me, it's all these like fat burners and mm. waist trimmers and um, corsets and the skims and just everything to make you look thinner and smaller. Mm.
0: Yeah, I see that all the time too. Um, for me personally, um, a lot of what I follow is like Christian and spiritual like stuff, but then the advertisements aren't Christian at all. It's all about like, oh, like speak things into existence kind of thing. And it's like, it gives the idea of, okay, if you aren't positive all the time, then if you are ever sad, it's your fault
1: toxic positivity. Exactly. And
0: it's, it's hard to ignore that because you see it like every five posts.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's something that people tell us all the time. Like you said before, just be happy, think positive. And that's something that I feel like I get all the time where everyone's like, well, just think positive thoughts and you'll be fine. I get so frustrated. I'm
0: like, dude, if I could, don't you think I would?
1: <laughs> exactly. It's like, maybe I can think these thoughts and tell myself that, but do I believe it when everything is oh, yeah. teaching me to not believe it? Mm-hmm. Especially with social media. It's also that mm-hmm. fear of missing out. And if I don't look good enough, I can't post this. But if I don't post then I'm going to lose followers, people aren't going to, I'm doing, I'm going to lose friendships. There's so much pressure. And, and that's like starts.
0: crazy cause it's not explicit. It's like, yeah. none of that pressure is told directly to you. Like, Hey, meet this standard, do this, do that buy this, talk to these people. It's not, no one tells you that, but it's the mm-hmm. algorithm that it's created. And it's like you said, the fear of missing out. That's where it's derived from is like, no one has to tell you to do it. It's because it's assumed it's the norm. That's, that's the norm that we're supposed to follow
1: exactly and it's so kind of common in our society to start attacking people in the comments we don't agree with something we don't like the way someone loves cancel culture we start attacking and it's so easy to do behind a screen Mm -hmm. and that's another thing that contributes to mental health Mm -hmm. being constantly bullied and being terrified to post being terrified to not post what are people going to say it's overwhelming and we have kids doing it so young they're on social media 10 years old eight years old yep it's being they're growing up with that overwhelming fear and ideas that they don't even know are in their minds
0: oh my gosh I can't I mean like yes I'm very upset about like whenever I see like a little like six-year-old that's like going on Instagram and stuff and they're seeing all these like teenagers or older adults that are you know maybe don't have don't have values that align with mine (laughs) I'll just say that it's like it's sad because I'm like that's being put into such an impressionable brain such an impressionable mind and whatever they're exposed to now they're going to remember it and they're going to hold dear even if they don't even try to for the rest of their lives and exactly. it's like, no, like we're the older ones, we're, we're the adults here. Like we're supposed to set an example for these kids. And so the only way that we can do that is to acknowledge like, Hey, you shouldn't probably be doing this or like, Hey, I probably shouldn't be on this for that long. Or like, Hey, maybe I should block, or maybe I should unfollow this because I know that it doesn't add anything to my life. So why would it add anything to anyone else's life? Exactly.
1: Exactly being accountable with our social media use. And like you said, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, these are formative brain years. This is a very, very important time when your brain's developing. And when your brain's developing through this constant attachment to a screen, attachment to your follower numbers, your like numbers, your comments, what people are saying about you, how people are going to perceive you, what you have to look like, what you have to do to be accepted and be cool. It can really break you later on yeah and like that you're driven by fear exactly like cancel culture
0: like we were talking about oh I loathe it I don't hate a lot of things in this world but cancel culture is definitely up there and it's so sad because it's an innate desire for human beings to connect with other human beings and to feel that sense of belonging and so with cancel culture not only are you hurting someone's feelings, not only are you attacking someone's self-identity or, you know, uh, self-confidence, but you're isolating them. And that, I mean, that's why, like, solitary confinement is such an inhumane, horrible thing to think about even, like, being possible. But, yeah, we're not, you know, we're not confined to four, you know, to four walls and we're not, like, you know, uh, denied human contact. But it's still... It's still horrible to do to someone is isolating them and telling them you don't belong here. You you know, no one likes you. No one wants to be around you because of something that you think or because something that you've done. And that cancel culture creates isolation, which creates loneliness. And loneliness is probably the biggest or one of the biggest factors that lead to mental health issues that lead to depression that lead to anxiety, that leads to literally everything is that sense of loneliness. And so imagine yourself being beat down so much to where you feel isolated from the rest of the world. What are the odds of you actually asking another person for help when you have been conditioned to believe that no one wants to be around you, that no one wants to talk to you? And that's what people are doing. And they don't, realize it because it's normal
1: and it's so heartbreaking and it needs to stop (laughs) it really is and Mm -hmm. it also goes against the whole field of psychology as a whole because psychology teaches you that we can grow that humans can grow we can learn we can adapt our behaviors over time we can evolve we can change we can be better and do better but cancel culture goes Five years ago, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, you did something bad. You're now a terrible person. Mm -hmm. But maybe you were not a bad person, but you made a very bad mistake. You did something wrong 11 years ago. Maybe it was completely out of character. Maybe it wasn't. But that doesn't mean that today you're that bad person or that Mm -hmm. in that bad place or making those same mistakes. You could have grown. And we try to attack people and put them into this hole where it's like, that's who you are. You're stuck there forever. You're allowed to make mistakes. Some people make mistakes that are a lot more severe than others. And that's a whole other topic that I won't get into. But we can't just keep attacking people and telling them that they're worthless, that they don't, that they're canceled. You're not a TV show. You're not a TV Mm -hmm. show. You can't cancel a human (laughs) being. It just, But, you know, it's no question. You can't just disappear. And people Mm -hmm. are telling you to disappear, to go away, that you're done, that you're worthless, that you're terrible. And like you said, when you feel so isolated, who are you going to reach out to for help? Because you feel so alone. And who's going to believe you? Who's going to understand you? Who's going to care for you? Who's going to nurture you? Who's going Mm -hmm. to be there for you? (sighs) It's
0: deep. The heavy topic <laughs> and like so like going into like the whole stigma thing and you know maybe you aren't telling someone like hey I hate you because you have depression or like hey I don't want to be around you because you have OCD like maybe you're not saying that to someone maybe you're not here you know hearing that specifically but if someone makes a joke when you open up or when I'm completely honest and I'm saying you know like today, I don't know why, but my anxiety is through the roof and I can't do anything, you know, or like, Hey, I have to cancel plans because I don't have the will to even get out of bed. Like if I were to say that, and then someone comes around and they don't attack me directly, but they play it off as something that's not a big deal. Or like, Oh, like if you had like, you know, migraines or like hardcore stomach ache, that would make sense. But if you're just feeling upset, then why don't you just over here, it's not a big deal. Like, that's a lousy excuse. Yeah. Like, that's not, you know, telling me that I don't mean anything, but like, specifically by your words, but that message is making me feel the same way as it's if validating. you have told me. Exactly. And it makes me seem like I am less, I am less of a person, or you will take me less seriously, or, you know, I'm weak or I'm making it all in my head or I'm selfish. Ooh, I hate when people are like, oh, you're selfish because you, you know, talk about this or you're selfish because like you're, or you're trying to get attention. Like, no, (laughs) like no one wants to go through this. This is not happy. This is not like, I don't want to like be, to, to be paralyzed by fear after just having a panic. I don't want to have a panic attack or like, I don't want to stay in bed all day and like think like most the world's most depressing thoughts i don't want to think about blackness i don't want to think about death i don't want to you know not be able to drive my car safely because i can't i don't know if i'm having a heart attack or not like that's that's not pleasant no one wants to do that so how can you tell me that i'm being selfish or that i'm doing this on my own personal vendetta like that doesn't make sense And then so that only creates more and more and more of a distance between me and that person or me and that group that's saying that or me and that society that is telling me what I should feel, even though they have no idea. And so what they do and what's happening now with BLM, with, you know, anti-Asian hate, with the uh, Israel-Palestinian conflict and stuff, so many people are getting their information from other people who are getting information from other people who are getting information from an extremely inaccurate one-sided source and that's not how it's supposed to be that stigma is only going to be addressed and changed and talked about if we realize that there is a stigma you know if you have ever made um a joke or a comment about depression but you weren't even talking to anyone specifically you just like Or you just said, oh, I'm feeling depressed today. Like, you're probably not feeling depressed. You're probably just sad or upset about something. Like something as simple as that adds to the stigma that is already so big. So joking about OCD and saying, oh, like, you know, their OCD is crazy. Like, give them some time. Like, no, that's not. That's something that is causing them stress. And that is that is lowering the quality of their life. No one wants to have any of these things, but you, you, people portraying that this is a choice, people portraying that this is something not to take seriously, people invalidating, you know, what we go through or how we feel or how hard it is to change anything that just makes that climb that we have to make so much longer. And yeah, and it's just, everyone has a part to play in everything whether that is just sitting down and listening whether that is watching you know a video or reading an article whether that is calling someone specifically and asking them like hey if you're comfortable i want to learn more about what you deal with so i'm more educated something that everyone can do is there is available and i guarantee you if one person does that then that creates a ripple effect. But same goes the other way. If one person makes a crude joke or if one person feeds into the stigma, that creates a ripple effect the opposite direction.
1: Exactly, so. and the media plays such a big role in that. I was watching mm-hmm. a TV show that I love, love dearly, but there's so many times when a character goes and sticks her head in the oven and says, I wanna kill myself because of a small thing that happens. Or they talk about therapy and they're like for the psychologically deranged. Hmm. And although it's for comedic effect and it might make you laugh for a second, it's like, oh my goodness, you just contributed to the whole idea that you have to be deranged to go to therapy. And that's why a lot of people don't want to go to therapy Or when somebody says they're suicidal, they're just seeking attention and it's a joke, it's not serious. The media plays such a big role. Talking about eating disorders, how many shows have you seen where characters make jokes about, oh, I can't eat that? Or do I look like I eat? Or like, I can only sniff it and throw it away. Like there's so much being fed into our minds that we don't realize that are contributing to the stigma. And it's very, very frustrating because it's all coming at us without any realization. It's all unconscious.
0: Yeah. And that creates an image of, of us, of the population uh, with mental health problems. It creates an image that they expect us to fit into. And exactly. no, that's, that's not how it works. Exactly. <laughs> like panic attacks, they're not all crazy. They're, you know, like, they're not all intense. They're not all debilitating. I could be having a panic attack right now and you wouldn't even realize it, but that's how it works. And like how you were talking about like bipolar and stuff, everyone assumes that people with bipolar disorder act one way all the time, that you're either here or you're there and there's no in between, but that's not the same for everyone. Or like, they're always really, really happy or they're always really, really sad. But, you know, sometimes they can just be happy, like overly happy all the time and vice versa. And like, people don't know that. And like, I'm still learning and I've been exposed to this world so much more than the average population. And there's still so many things that I still have to learn. So there's not, you know, there's, there's, I'm like trying, oh my gosh, I'm getting like, when I get like really excited and stuff, I just kind of go off and then it drops. (laughs) like there's there's not just one thing that everyone has to know there's not just like one source like one illness one way to act like there's not it's not black and white you can start anywhere you can talk to anyone you can you know you whatever you're interested in whatever you're exposed to whatever or whatever jokes that you don't find funny but you don't know why they're not funny or you know if someone you know, reacts negatively to a joke. Okay, I want to know, did I hurt someone's feeling? Because I don't want to do that again. It's, it should be a, like a normal human being characteristic to care about other people um, and to have empathy. Now, empathy ranges a lot between human beings, but everyone has it to a certain extent. That's why we get sad when other people are sad. That's why we celebrate when other people are happy. And so if you see, if you get some sort of feeling or if you think like, oh, you know, even for a split second, like you laugh at something, but there is a part of you now that knows that something's wrong. Now, it's, it's, it might not be huge, but thank goodness for the people who are having these conversations and for the past decade have been doing everything they can to at least put it out into the world. Now we have a little place in people's minds, whether they're aware of it or not, that there's a tiny little spark in them that's going to tell them like, hey, you know, maybe I should look into that or like, hey, something's off. At least some sort of recognition that change needs to be made at really any
1: level. Exactly, and it's a conversation that will never end. You can never know enough. It's something that we will continue to learn and research and things will change. The DSM has had five versions because they're constantly learning and developing. And that's okay. And it's okay to get it wrong a million times as long as you continue trying to join in conversations. You don't have to speak, you can just listen. Educate yourself, learn. Don't just stay where you are because I think that's where society is is where we just kind of want to stay where we are. And it's so important to continue these conversations. And Kayla, thank you so, so much for joining me. You are absolutely incredible.
0: Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. I love having these conversations.